Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 as we continue our series on the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we're considering the saving ministry of Jesus. We have come down to uh, not only the last week of Jesus's life, but as we uh, will see this morning, we're coming down to the last hours of Jesus's life before he heads to the cross. Uh, as we begin this morning, we're going to be looking at, at verses 24 through 27. There actually are a couple more verses uh, in the bulletin this morning that we won't be looking at. We're going to stop at verse 27. But as we begin this uh, the study this morning, the question of greatness arises in this text. Uh, there's a conversation going on between the disciples, as we'll see in just a moment as we read it, uh, that asks the question, you know, kind of what's your rank? Where do you fall in, in the pecking order? Uh, how great are you? How great am I? And, and uh, as I was reading this passage this week, I, I began to think about the idea of greatness. You know, we use that in a lot of different ways. I would say, you know, come bowling this afternoon. It's going to be great. <laughs> or we say Jesus is a great Savior. <laughs> you know, those words can be used interchangeably for things that are radically, radically different. Uh, John L. Motley, who was a 19th century American historian and a diplomat, said this, deeds, not stones, are true monuments of the great. Albert Einstein suggested this, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. That one disturbs me just a little bit because I think I'm probably in that, in that mediocre range. And Einstein said, you know, greatness is always runs up against uh, folks who, who aren't great. Vincent Van Gogh said, great things are not done by impulse, but by a series of small things brought together. You know, you think about a painter, you think about someone who has such an eye and such an attention for detail. You know, he says, this, this isn't haphazard. It, it happens because some fall, small things come together in a very succinct way. Fernando Flores, who's a Chilean philosopher and entrepreneur and politician of our day, said, great work is done by people who are not afraid to be great. Napoleon Bonaparte said, great people are meteors designed to burn so that the earth may be lighted. Forget that Napoleon's uh, meteor <laughs> singed the earth uh, through an am- amazing amount of violence and warfare. Uh, and of course, in our generation, Muhammad Ali, with those famous words, I am the greatest, which of course, in his uh, field of work, he was. What does it mean to be great? You say, I have great kids. Well, I really had a great teacher in high school. How important is it to be great? Where is that in your order of things in your life and your agenda. Do you want to be a great dad, a great mom, a a great artist? How does that work out in your life? Jesus' disciples had some opinions about this, and they were having a pretty animated discussion about it as we uh, take up this question uh, in Luke chapter 22, uh, starting in verse 24 and just reading through verse 27. Hear the word of God. A dispute arose among them, them being the the, uh, disciples of Jesus, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, being Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. 
Father, as we uh, open this passage of Scripture, it would be easy for us to uh, immediately rebuke the disciples for their shallowness. It would be easy for us to uh, quickly assume that we are not uh, at times filled with pride and with uh, concern about our place uh, in the pecking order, so to speak. Father, we would like to think of ourselves as humble and servants. And yet, Lord, you uh, quickly draw attention through this text to uh, how easy it is for humans uh, to wrestle and struggle with pride, with arrogance, and being worried about our place uh, instead of following you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, allow us this morning to hear your words. Lord, you know that, that I am I am certainly not the greatest role model as a servant. At times, it's, it's all about me. So, Father, I pray that, that my heart, all of our hearts would come under your lordship this morning. And whatever you want to say to us, whatever you want to teach us would, would come through. Father, move me out of the way. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to us. Father, I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge that I do not stand here by right or by authority or by anything other than the shed blood of Jesus. So I pray that you would come and you would teach us, each one of us individually, what you want us to learn and understand and discern from you this morning and apply to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me very quickly give you the context in which this passage takes place, this interchange between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, and then I want to offer you five observations in the text, and then I'm going to give you some application as we, as we wrap up. And the context is this. If you read a few verses prior to uh, the verses which I read today, you would see that this conversation takes place during uh, the last evening Jesus is with his disciples. It's, it's on the night in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, and what we're going to uh, celebrate today. Uh, the betrayal uh, Judas has already uh, taken place. Judas has, has left the room, and he's on his way uh, to find the chief priests and the elders. Uh, Jesus has, has just served uh, the new Lord's Supper to his disciples in the context of the Passover, uh, and he has talked to them uh, in terms of, of his body as a living sacrifice, his body broken, his blood spilled out for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, Jesus has been offering uh, some very deep insights into their lives. And it's amidst this evening around the table that this discussion begins to take place. Now, you can't only think about that particular evening. You also have to think of this conversation in the context of the last three and a half years. Jesus has been with these now 11 men uh, 24-7 for three and a half years. They have spent all their time together. These men have followed Jesus very passionately and very purposefully. They, they have not left his side except for a few occasions where Jesus has sent them out two by two to, to go and to minister in his name. Other times when Jesus just pulled aside uh, James and John and Peter to go and do something uh, together with him. But by and large, for the most part, the disciples of Jesus, the ones who are arguing about greatness, have been at his side nonstop. Jesus has poured his life into these men. Think about all the things that they've seen and heard over the last three and a half years. Peter was minding his own business. He was, he was a fisherman, and, he, and he, Jesus comes by one day and helps him catch a whole bunch of fish, and he leaves his business, and he goes and he follows Jesus. 
like so many of the other disciples. They were in the middle of their careers, and they laid all that aside, and they went and followed him. And what did they see, and what did they experience? They saw the blind receive their sight. They saw a lame man get up and walk. They sat by his side as he preached uh, one of the most amazing sermons ever given in the Sermon on the Mount. They stood by the tomb of Lazarus probably just a few weeks before this evening, and they saw a dead man get up out of a tomb. They heard Jesus rebuke those who would keep children from coming to him. And he talked about how important it was to love the smallest and the weakest. They heard him talk about the fact that he had come to seek and to save. They saw him go to the home of a tax collector, someone who was a complete outsider, and share with him the love and the compassion and the mercy of God. Think about what these men had seen and experienced. And now they're sitting around the table with Jesus. As I said, Jesus has already departed just hours away from the cross, probably just moments away from getting up from the table and going to Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pour his heart out to his father and they are going to fall asleep uh, out of sheer exhaustion. And in the midst of all of this experience, in the midst of walking hand in hand, side by side to the Savior for three and a half years, this is the conversation. It's mind-boggling, quite frankly. I mean, I don't want to pick on the disciples, but, but how do you spend all this time with Jesus, and that's the result? How, how do you stand alongside the one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many? How do you stand next to the guy who said, no student is greater than his teacher. It's enough for you to be like him. So go and serve like I've served. How do you have all that experience? And your conversation is, I think I'm the best one. I think I'm the greatest. It's hard to put those two things together. I was talking to a friend the other night who was sharing with me his experience in coaching his daughter's grade school basketball teams. And he has several daughters, and he taught several teams over the years. And and coaching little girls is a little bit different, I think, than coaching little boys. One of the stories he told is we were in the middle of a game, and it was a heated game. We were going up and down the court, and and I looked down the bench to, to call in a sub, and there was nobody there. And I said, where'd everybody go? And, and the assistant coach said, well, they all decided they had to go to the bathroom, so they all left together. They'll be back in just a minute. <laughs> you know, That's not supposed to happen in a basketball game. <laughs> supposed, to be, supposed to be involved and ready to go. Coach, put me in. How did this happen? How do we get to this place? Well, I think there's some insights in the text that will uh, maybe help us to not be too critical of the disciples, to, to acknowledge that maybe they, they absolutely missed something here, but also to understand that there's a lesson for us as well. So let me offer you just a few observations out of this text. The first thing I want to suggest is that the disciples misunderstood the plan. Look at how this starts in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I think one of the things we need to understand and, and where I think we need to cut the disciples a little slack is that they were absolutely convinced that the kingdom of God was at hand. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but their picture of a Messiah was not a suffering servant. Their picture of the Messiah had nothing to do with a cross. Their picture and their concept of a Messiah was a conquering king. And in their day and age, they were looking for someone to come and throw off the, the yoke of slavery, the burden they were under with the Roman Empire, and to reestablish the nation of Israel. It had been 400 years since the last prophet of Israel had spoken. 
It had been several hundred years beyond that since the kingdom of Israel had fallen. They had not been a nation under themselves for over 700 years. And Jesus comes onto the scene with power and with authority. And they believe it's time for his inauguration. They are convinced that Jesus is going to be the king who's going to be seated on the throne. And because they are with him, as I said, for three and a half years, they are his hand-picked men, 24-7 there together, it was very natural for them to say, okay, well, where will I fit in? (laughs) You kind of guess that this conversation didn't start out with, hey, I think I'm better than you guys and I'm the greatest. This conversation probably started out somewhere along the lines of, do you think, you know, today's the day? (laughs) Is this when Jesus is going to make his move? And if he does, you know, what do you think your role is going to be? What do you think my role is going to be? And, and somebody probably said something that, that uh, was a little bit more of a self-estimation than they should have had. You know, and Peter probably said, wait a minute, you're, you know, you're not that smart. You're not going to do that. To which somebody replied, well, Peter, you still smell like fish three and a half years later. Who do you think you are? You know, and it just kind of took off, guys being guys. And the question came, where will I fit in? Will I have a cabinet post? Will I be an ambassador? You know, kind of what's in it for me? I have to be honest with you guys. My favorite politician in the United States right now is Rob Blagojevich. I got to be honest with you and confess that to you because I love the fact that that he he asked the question, what's in it for me? Now, I I don't want to be overly critical of my brothers and sisters who have gone into politics. There are wonderful people in politics, but I think he said what everybody thinks. (laughs) You know, I do this because there's there's something, whether it's power or fame. You know, I kind of miss Rod. I miss turning on the TV and seeing his smiling face. I, I wish him well. But I think, I think, you know, okay, what he did maybe was a little shady, but I think it's a natural... I'm really digging a deep hole, aren't I? I need to move on. I understand. I, I think it's a natural reaction. Hey, I've, I've paid my dues. What am I going to get out of this? Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever said to yourself, you know, I've worked at this a long time. I deserve to be rewarded. I've gone to school. I've gone to graduate school. I've, I've worked hard. I've, I've created my own business. I've raised all these kids, whatever the case may be. I think, you know, wait a minute, wait a second. What's in it for me? I think this is a very human reaction, but it is a misunderstanding of the plan of Jesus. Look at verse 25. Jesus says this to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. I think what Jesus is trying to say to to the guys is, you know what, fellas? I think you've assumed kind of a wrong paradigm. You've assumed kind of a worldly uh, plan for authority and for power, and you've misunderstood what my kingdom is going to look like. He calls their attention to the Gentiles. And in using that term Gentiles, Jesus is speaking uh, not only uh, from, from a position of race, you know, folks that are not Israelites, but he's also making a theological statement. In Scripture, Gentile is a person who, who is outside or alienated from a relationship with God. They're a person that, that doesn't have faith in God. When you call someone a Gentile, you were calling them an unbeliever. Uh, You weren't necessarily saying they were of a certain nationality. You were saying they were outside uh, of a relationship with God. They didn't have faith. They were living for this life only. So Jesus is putting the conversation in that context. He says, now, you know the Gentiles, and how do they exercise their governments? Well, they attain greatness through power and intimidation. The Gentiles exercise lordship. They come with authority. They start with authority, and they finish with authority, and in between is authority. That's how they work. They work through power. They work through coercion. They work through armies. They work through through conquering. Jesus says, you guys understand that, and they did. The nation of Israel was under the thumb of Rome. 
And so you can see Jesus sitting around the table and say, hey, fellas, wait a minute. You know how it is with the Gentiles, how they exercise lordship, how they exercise lordship over us as a nation. You can see everybody going, amen. <laughs> That's right, Lord, they sure do. But he also says they call themselves benefactors. What he's saying there is that there's an irresistible human urge to call attention to yourself. There is within every person this seed, and you can call it pride. Or you can call it a, a desire for attention. Uh, our littlest children uh, cry out for attention, don't they? I was standing in line yesterday at, at Einstein's waiting to get a sandwich for lunch, and there was a mom in front of me, and she had a table of, of a couple of kids over here, and I guess maybe her sister, sister-in-law was sitting at the table, and she was going through to get the order, and uh, her little boy was next to her, and he was about, I don't know, maybe two and a half years old, came up to about here on her, and uh, it's a cold day. She had on a jacket, and what was he doing? He was grabbing on to the jacket. And I watched him, and he grabbed on the jacket, and she was kind of talking and ignoring him. And I was watching, he was grabbing on the jacket, he was looking, and he was eye level with the chocolate milk. So it was pretty clear what was going on here. But he was pulling on the jacket and looking at the chocolate milk, and she's trying to talk and swatting the hand away. Finally, she said, what? What do you want? (laughs) That's how we live. You know, we're always pulling on the jacket. Look at me. Let me show you what I've done. Call me a benefactor. See me, I'm, I might have conquered your nation, but see me as the benevolent one. See me as, as the one who, who is in the very best light possible. I was reading recently about a baseball player who was politicking to get himself into the Hall of Fame. It seems to me that that goes against the whole grain, the whole, the whole point of the Hall of Fame. But, but that's our human nature, to call out for attention and to get it by any means possible, even if it means exerting authority, power, influence, even if it means exerting that in an inappropriate way. And so Jesus says to the disciples, you know, you guys kind of have this paradigm in your mind, but you've, you've assumed the wrong, the wrong design. And he offers them a kingdom clarification in verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and a leader as one who serves. That verse really doesn't need that much uh, ex- explanation this morning. I'm just going to light on it for, for just a moment. Jesus says, my people must think differently or use a different measuring stick, so to speak, when considering greatness. Not so with you. Jesus says, I have a different set of rules. I have a different way of going about doing this. And, and Jesus says, let me explain to you why it isn't so with you. Let me give you an example of how you should think. And he gives two examples that are really pretty startling. <laughs> they're, they're really kind of, if you pay attention to them carefully, they, they ought to at least get you to sit up and think just a bit. First thing he says is, if you want to be great, you need to become like one of the youngest. Now, the youngest, the children, the most vulnerable, those who can't fend for themselves, those, those who need others, and those who know they need others. Jesus says your mindset needs to be that of a young one. There's also a, an innocence about being young. Uh, we are not innocent at birth. We still are covered with the, the stain of sin. We will grow up to be wonderfully gifted sinners. But there is some innocence about childhood. And there's a sense of faith about childhood that, that is a bit more profound than an adult faith. And Jesus says, if you want to think about greatness in my kingdom, you've got to think about childlike faith. You've got to think about approaching your relationship with God from an attitude of vulnerability. God, I'm not here to serve you. I'm not here to do all the stuff you want me to do. I'm here because I need you. I'm here because I long for you. 
Jesus says, you must become like one of the youngest. And then he says, you must become like the one who serves. The, the Greek word there literally is the word that's found in Acts chapter 6. Sean was talking about Acts 6 this morning. It's the word for deacon. Uh, and a deacon literally means a person who serves at the table, uh, a waiter or a waitress. Uh, we, if you go to a restaurant this afternoon before you come in and bowl your perfect game with us, okay, someone will come in and take your order. And that's the word that Jesus used here. He says, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you, you got to have a radically different perspective that says, I want to look for opportunities to serve. I'm not going to wait for somebody to ask me. You know, if you're sitting at a restaurant and you got to ask for the waiter, if, you, if that person hasn't come to your table yet, you're a little frustrated, aren't you? You, know, you expect them to see you sitting down and to, and to come right up to the table. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked a little bit in the restaurant business, and the waiters that made the best tips were the folks that were Johnny on the spot and ready to go and right there, and how can I help you, and how can I serve you? Does that describe the kingdom of God in our day, in our generation? Jesus says it ought to. So he helps them clarify. He clarifies for them how his kingdom should look. But not only does he clarify it, I'm going to leave Luke for just a moment, and I'm going to go over to John's gospel. And in John chapter 13, I want you to see that Jesus not only clarifies what his kingdom look like, looks like, but he models it for them. Uh, in John chapter 13, it's on, the, it's on the screen here, verses 3 through 5. This is the same evening. Uh, I don't know, and, and Scripture doesn't tell us, is this uh, before this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples in Luke? We're not sure. It could be after his conversation. It could be that he said through 5, this is the same evening. Uh, after his conversation, it could be that he said, not so with you guys, but if you want to be like in my kingdom, you want to be like a child or you want to be a waiter, and he might have stopped right there and got up and had this experience. We don't know, but somewhere in the context of this conversation, Jesus embodies what he's teaching. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, that means that Jesus knew that he was the ruler of the universe, okay? Okay. Now, if that verse said Tom knew that he was the ruler of the universe, the next verse would not follow, okay? It would be something radically different. He had 18 hole-in-ones right in a row. It would, it, would, it would read something different than what's up here. But because Jesus knew this, verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. My fourth observation is simply this, that Jesus models his command. He doesn't call you to serve while he sits on his throne. He doesn't call you to walk down a pathway that he himself has not first traveled. And as Christ calls us to be servants, as Jesus calls us to look for opportunities to care for others, to take on the mindset of the person who is waiting on the tables, he's asking us to do what he himself has already done. And in that, his leadership is truly profound. It is truly great. But also I want you to notice my last observation in this text is found in verse 27. Jesus leaves no room for doubt. Look at verse 27. He says this, For who is the greatest... The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one that reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Who's the greatest? 
Well, it's an obvious question. It's almost a tongue-in-cheek type of question. Jesus knows the answer before he asks it. Anybody knows? Well, the person sitting at the table is, is of, of uh, higher esteem than the person who's waiting on them. Right. That's true in this case. Jesus says, I, I'm here reclining at the table with you. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. Fellas, I'm the guy that actually spoke this universe into being. You know how you exist? You know how you came into being? You know how all of this happened? I opened my mouth and I spoke it into being. Power that we can't begin to fathom. And yet I am here what? I'm here among you as a servant. And the church needs to take its lead from Jesus. Church needs to understand in this day and age that one of the most powerful modes of witness we have is not the words we speak, but the attitude of our hearts and the actions of our hands and feet that lead us to serve. I got to hear some of the, some of the stories that happened on the homes of Hope Trip, and I got to hear a story uh, from one of the guys on the trip about how they led some folks to Christ, the family that they were building this home. Do you think they would have had that opportunity if they, if they didn't go as servants? You think they would have had that opportunity if they didn't demonstrate to them the love of Christ by helping them get out from under the rain and the storms and have a dry place to live? That's not the extent of evangelism. We we need to speak the truth of Christ, but we need to do it from the heart of a servant. I said I would wrap this up with, with some application. Let me give you four quick applications of this text as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. How do we develop a heart of a servant? How do I look more like Jesus than like one who sits at the table and argues about where my place is going to be in in his kingdom? The first one's a pretty simple one. Pray for a joyful serving attitude. (laughs) Ask God to give you a heart that longs to serve. If you're like me, I really like other people serving me. You know, every once in a while, Cindy will say, Tom, it's kind of all about you, isn't it? (laughs) Boy, that kind of cuts to the quick, but it's, it's true often. You know, I love it when one of the kids says, hey, I'm getting up. Can I get you something? <laughs> you know, find time in your devotional time, your prayer time, to pray for a, for a joyful serving attitude. Understand that this begins with the heart. This is not about our actions, but this is about our mindset. I would encourage you to go back and study the Gospels. I would go, encourage you to go back and look at, at the writings of the apostles in the New Testament and, and the epistles and look at how many times they talk about caring for others and serving others and ministering to others. Look at how often Jesus' knee-jerk reaction is to go to the weakest and the poorest and the most hurting. It's just the way he thought prayer time, to pray for a, for a joy. Jesus' knee-jerk reaction is to go to the weakest and the poorest and the most hurting. It's just the way he thought. It just was who he was, and we need to have that mindset and graft it into our lives. We need to pray for a joyful serving attitude. Secondly, I want you to understand that God matches gifts with passion, which is a way of saying, how are you wired? What gets you excited? Sean Clawson does not like to stand up here and speak to you all. He will not be back next Sunday, okay? <laughs> he will be setting up something somewhere and doing something that he gets really excited about. But he's wired that way. He, he, he's perfect in that sense to be a deacon because that's, that's who Sean is. How are you wired? Maybe that you love little kids and that you want to spend time helping lead them to Jesus. Could be that, that you want to help set up. There's a lot of different ways to serve could be that, that, that in your office or in your classrooms, in your school, there could be a way that you can find that brings you great joy as you serve others. But are you looking for an opportunity to discern that, to understand that? God wants your service to be joyful, and he's wired you that way. 
It's for us to discover the places that we really get a kick out of serving and then going and doing that with all of our heart. I remember just a, a couple years ago, we had our 10th anniversary celebration and it kind of was a year-long deal. You know, we ended up down at Forest Park and had that great party and that was a lot of fun. But all throughout that year, I don't know if you remember, we did projects at the Lydia House. Uh, we did a ministry partnership with them for the year and we did <clears throat> kind of the apartment makeovers and, and folks uh, helped with the gardens and things like that down at Liddy House. But when we set that deal up, I found three people that I knew would really get a kick out of that. You know, if you know me very well at all, that if you come up to me uh, and, and we begin talking about how you're wired, I'm going to find something for you to do. <laughs> you know, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And that's, you know, that's part of what a, what a pastor ought to do, right? <laughs> you know, so a lot of people see me coming and they kind of do this and, you know, walk the other way. And I don't blame you for that. But, but I found three people who I knew would love Liddy House. I said, hey, I got this idea about a whole year-long celebration kind of thing. I think it ought to be service and celebration and Lydia House, and they all, their eyes lit up. And I, you know what? I didn't do anything the rest of the year. And I said, call me if you need me. Never called me. <laughs> you know, I, they just were off and running. Why? Because God had wired them that way. How are you wired? Do you understand that? If you need some help with that, let us help you with that. There's, we have staff members and folks at church who can help you figure that out. Thirdly, this, get in the company of servants. Find people who have joyful serving hearts and spend time with them. There are plenty of self-serving, self-seeking, self-gratifying people that we can spend our time with. But friends, you need to get around people who get this passage. You need to get around folks who, who live it and breathe it and understand it in the depths of their soul. I remember years ago when I was one of the pastors over at, Green, over at Central and I ran into a friend of mine on the sidewalk, and I was talking to her about, I was just frustrated about some things and struggling with some things, and her name was Rosemary Oliver, and some of you know Rosemary. Rosemary had just come back from spending a year and a half or two years in Philadelphia as a principal of an inner city school, and uh, you know, I was kind of pouring you know, some of my big problems out to her and, and uh, eventually got her out to her. So, Rosie, what's next on your schedule? What are you going to be doing? She says, oh, I'm, I'm leaving in a week or two. I'm going over to Calcutta, and I'm spending a month with Mother Teresa. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I'm really okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to be around people like Rosemary Oliver because I want it to rub off on me. I want to find people that are serving and I, want to, and I want to find out what makes them tick. And I want to have that experience grow in my life as well. And then my fourth thought, my fourth suggestion to you is this. And to myself, wash someone's feet every day. I don't mean literally wash somebody. You could do that. That'd be fine but serve somebody every day. Don't lay your head on the pillow at night. I don't care if it's you look in the kitchen and there's four dirty dishes in the sink and your spouse is tired and exhausted and you're tired and exhausted and you go ahead and do those dishes anyway. I'm not talking about climbing Mount Everest of service. I'm simply saying that day in and day out, find places to serve in the kingdom of God and watch the joy of serving grow in your life and watch your heart be protected from that desire, that sinful desire to be first and to be the greatest by the world's standards. Last Sunday, we, uh, we gave out Bibles to the second graders. And uh, if you have a second grader and you open the inside flap of that Bible, you would notice that there was a little note in that Bible. Uh, and it, had been, uh, it, it was a note that I had written to all the kids, uh, and I signed my name on it. And I uh, left this. Kirk was preaching last Sunday, so I, as soon as he finished his sermon... Uh, and, and he went into prayer, I snuck out the door and I ran down to the Sunday school classroom because I wanted to say hi to the, to the, to the second graders. And one of the teachers told me as I was walking in the door, she said, one of the, one of the kids opened up their Bible and read it and saw it signed by Tom and looked up and said, who's Tom? 
Good lesson for humility. <laughs>